0: Tina from Bettina's Kitchen. I'm a plant-based chef and cookbook author.
1: And I'm Nikki from Rebel Recipes, a plant-based food blogger and cookbook author.
0: And this is our podcast What the Focaccia, kindly brought to you by the organic retailer Abel & Cole, who are all about being sustainably minded.
1: And you can find out lots more on their website, abelandcole.co.uk and they have kindly offered you, our podcast listeners, a brilliant offer. Which is 10
0: pounds of your first three shops, over 30 pounds. All the ts and c's are on their website as well, abelandcole.co.uk. And I am here with the lovely Pixie Turner. Hello. 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 Welcome to our podcast. We are so happy to have you here. Your three books
2: in. I am. Oh God, I am three books you in. You are three yeah. books in. How did that happen? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I often feel like I don't deserve to have three books because I'm so young in my career still. So there's a little bit of a weird imposter syndrome with that. But I got my first cook, well, my first book deal within months of leaving uni. So that was a, That's bit, amazing. a bit intense and launched me straight into working freelance rather than trying to get a job. I remember that. That seems like not so long ago two and a half years ago two and
0: a half years ago wow how did that time go so um, other than books you are also very well known for debunking wellness myths Mm-hmm.
2: yeah well, yes
1: that's my favourite thing to do how did it all start because, how did it all start I mean I, rem- I remember you many years ago I mean certainly you'd um, when I started out on Instagram and I think Bettina probably started at the same time you were all very already like well established so I feel like you were like one of the you know first remember, people did, did you on live the in Australia no I did. You
0: did live in Australia? I did live in Australia, Oh my goodness, it's not something that I'm just imagining. You did live in Australia.
2: That was in 2015, yeah. Yeah, so before I lived in Australia, before that, I was one of those people who peddled huge amounts of misinformation on the internet because I was insecure and because I wanted to be like other um, pretty health bloggers who all looked exactly the same as me for some reason. They were all pretty much tall, thin, white, mostly blonde, and... Shiny. And I wanted to be shiny and happy and successful. How old were you then, Pixie? I was 19. 19. Yes. I was also, yeah, quite young, uh, quite impressionable, had just had some kind of health scare, which also made me much more vulnerable, I think, to that kind of misinformation. And so I decided to follow the most extreme advice I could find on the Internet which was peddled by these beautifully attractive people. Mm. And then thought, hey, I'll do that. And just to kind of complete the package, I will post about it on, on Instagram as well. And I did. And I gained around 80,000 followers in two years by sharing my really, really, at that time, unattractive pictures of food. We're talking yellow lighting. We're talking harsh shadows. We're talking not <laughs> really well styled, just holding it out on my hand, mm. taking a picture. And for some reason, that worked. Instagram's evolved though, hasn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. So this was maybe, <laughs> how old am I? This was seven to eight years ago. So wow. that was quite a long time ago, mm. back when there weren't anywhere near as many people on Instagram. Yeah. So there wasn't as much competition. And I was a student, which I think was appealing to yeah. people as well. And was, I did I think that it was
1: more, a bit more um, sharing just your real life then, wasn't it? A bit more
2: yeah, raw. Raw, exactly. Raw. Yeah, including hashtag raw vegan. That was one of my most used hashtags because hashtag raw vegan got me more likes than hashtag vegan and that was the only reason why I did it oh it's kind of funny looking back because I messed up so much and I made so many stupid mistakes and did so many stupid things but I like to think that everything I've done since has been trying to make up for that and one of those things was going to Australia realizing how much of an idiot I was being and how much misinformation I was spreading which was I think was enabled by the fact that I was halfway across the world completely around strangers, not around any friends or in in not even surrounded by the whole Instagram world of Mm. the UK. Mm. And so I was able to distance myself and completely change what I was doing and came back to the UK. And guess what? I got a degree. So, yeah, yeah, so
0: we can now call you a registered nutritionist and yes. a science communicator.
2: Yes, sounds much more fancy yeah. than influencer, even though it's kind of the same thing, but with science. Mm. Not to say that influencers don't use science, but it's not a guarantee.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. A lot of them don't. Yeah, um, I mean, there's lots of information out there, isn't it? And I suppose it misinformation, depends, as misinformation as well. And yeah. I suppose it depends whether people are talking about their own sort of personal experience or trying to um, broadcast a message or give advice. It's... It's a bit more grey, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And you're
0: you're quite known and uh, for being outspoken and having um, views on nutrition. Yes, isn't that weird? A qualified
2: expert having views on their expertise. Yes, wow. <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, no, I say that. But it is unusual, I think, for someone on Instagram to be vocal about things that are controversial, because it's so much easier to just not and to hide hide away from those things and to not be controversial and to simply keep everyone happy. And I'm not interested in keeping people happy. I'm interested in the truth and I'm interested in the ethical aspect of things in terms of ethical, accurate information and the ethics of misinformation. Hmm. And I'm also interested in actually helping people enjoy food rather than being afraid of it. How have, um, because um, as, you, as you said, that
1: wasn't how you started. How, how did people respond to the, the change in your direction?
2: A lot of people responded quite well because Mm -hmm. I did it very, very gradually. I knew that the people I needed to reach the most were the people who I'd already started preaching misinformation to. And so I thought if I change too quickly, I will lose those people. And partly I didn't want to lose them just for my own ego. You know, losing followers is not a nice feeling, let's be honest. But the other part of that was that I knew that those people were the people who needed to hear what I was going to say the most. And so I very gradually, gradually introduced these ideas of myth busting, for example. And I managed to keep a lot of people over that time. I also got a lot of hate and abuse from Did people. You? Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. A lot. Um, the first time I posted a picture of something. No, the second time I posted a picture of something that wasn't vegan, it made people very angry with me uh, because I didn't offer an explanation. I didn't explain myself and people were just very shocked and decided to tell me that I was a terrible human,
1: which I didn't think I
2: was really. But apparently, yeah, people thought I was a terrible person. I lost a lot of followers and spent two years basically continuously losing followers, regaining some, losing more, regaining some with a net negative five thousand over the course of two years because of what I was saying. Right. Including celery juice and stuff like that. Oh
0: yes, the celery juice. Mm. I don't know about the celery juice. Oh, gosh. Tell me. There's been something circulating around social media in and around celery juice and how healing
2: it is and mm-hmm. how it can help you with different it's completely, ailments. Can you
1: pass me by, interestingly? Um, <laughs> really? But like half of Hollywood miraculous... two of Instagram
2: are now drinking celery yeah. juice first thing in the morning. So what's your opinion mm. on that? I can tell you it's biologically implausible for celery juice to have some kind of miraculous effect on so many different conditions. There is no one food or one substance that can cure or that can cure that many conditions in one go just because the body is complex. And that's why, for example, we have different drugs for different things or even different nutrients for different uh, aspects of how the body functions. So the idea that one single food can magically cure so many things is biologically completely implausible. Also, there is no biochemical mechanism by which celery juice can actually cure anything. It's basically flavoured water. And water is great for hydration, so some people see an improvement in their skin simply because they're drinking more fluid. And that's great, but it is just water. And in fact, one of the most beneficial aspects of celery is the fibre, which you are missing out by juicing it. So mm. if you like celery, just eat it with some hummus because there is no better way to eat celery. Hummus. Well, hummus improves everything because I actually yeah, think that... Nikki's obsessed with hummus. Yeah, but I
1: hate <laughs> celery. It's the devil's food. Oh,
2: no. So no. I like the crunch
1: sometimes. <laughs> I eat it more for a texture thing. I hate it.
2: <laughs> oh, my
0: God. You don't like fries.
2: No. You don't like celery.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm finding out lots of new things about you today. Parsley. Oh, dear. Both types? Parsley.
2: Curly Curly and flat. flat flat (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) Because I don't like curly, but flat leaf is gorgeous.
1: I think that um, parsley tastes like celery. Really? Maybe you've got Ooh. that funny gene then
2: <laughs> <laughs> Like like what people have with coriander where they yes, <laughs> say it exactly. tastes like soap.
1: Yeah.
0: You've exactly. got that, you've I love got that g- parsley gene, I yeah. reckon. Yeah. So moving on. Um food shaming. Uh foods that are good or bad. Um I think Nikki and I are in agreement that we shouldn't be
2: shaming foods. And what's your what's your opinion on this? Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think that food shaming is in any way useful. I think food shaming in the sense of shaming people for eating certain foods is yeah. not helpful, but also shaming foods and calling them, I, you know, you see people online saying things like this food is toxic, and that's impossible, because if it were toxic, it wouldn't be food. Yeah, that's the very that's the, the very nature and the very definition of food. If it's food, it's edible and therefore is safe for consumption. Yeah, It's not toxic. You- also, arguably, everything is toxic given the right quantities. If you were to drink six litres of water in quick succession, you would die. If you were to eat 50 bananas in a day, you would probably get potassium poisoning. And if you eat around 300 grams of raw kidney beans per kilogram of your own body weight, you would also die. So th- anything is toxic given the right quantities. Mm-hmm. However, food in the quantities in which humans eat food is not toxic because that's what makes it food. So I don't think that kind of discussion is helpful. Also, calling foods good or bad completely removes the nuance and the complexity of what it means to eat as a human because there are so many different reasons why we eat things and there are so many different contexts in which we eat foods. And so to say that a food is good or bad is not really helpful in any way. You could argue that nuts are a good food, but if you're allergic to them, then they're definitely not a good food. Mm. You could argue that uh, fruit juice is too sugary, but you could also say that for someone who's living with type 1 diabetes, that is a lifesaver in certain times. Or for someone who doesn't like vegetables very much, drinking fruit juice, at least they're getting one of their five a day. So it really is so context-dependent. And I think we are, the reasons why we shame people for what they eat are incredibly interesting and complex, especially there seems to be a lot of insecurity. Uh, Brené Brown has written um, some amazing stuff about shame. And what she said, which I find speaks so true, is the idea that we shame people for things that we ourselves are insecure about, because that way the shame is taken away from us and we project it onto others, because at least it means we're not talking about ourselves. Mm. At least if we're shaming Mm. someone else, the focus is on them. And not on what I'm insecure about. Mm. And so we tend to shame people for the things that we are most insecure about ourselves. Therefore, if you're food shaming someone else, it likely means that you yourself are insecure about what you're eating or maybe why you're making the food decisions that you do. Which I imagine a lot of people are, I would imagine. Yes, very much so. And the other part of that, I think, is that the food that we eat represents so much and we define... uh, we. We identify so much in people based on the way that they eat. We identify things about who they are. We identify things about their their culture, their background, their upbringing, their likes and dislikes, their mood, their, their preferences. We identify so much about a person based on the food that they eat. Therefore, we use that as almost a proxy for deciding whether we like someone or not and whether we agree with someone or not. It's become such a cultural thing, though. Uh, It always has been in a way. Food has always been such an important part of culture. hmm. And one of the beautiful things that represents and defines culture as well and defines our groups of populations on the planet in a beautiful way, in a a way that uh, makes us feel connected to others. And that is something that food can do that is so beautiful. But I think the nature of social media and uh, posting about food online means that these groups that we have, these cultures are now in a completely different context that they were actually never really designed to be in the first place.
0: No, exactly. And there's different categories now um, within food cultures, isn't there? There's veganism, there's paleo, there's keto, there's, there's all sorts of things. There's mm-hmm. even
2: carnivore. Oh, there's carnivore. Which is yeah. probably, in my humble opinion, the stupidest way to eat mm. in existence. Yes, why would you why would you get rid of all fruits and vegetables and all plants and just eat meat? I do not understand. It's
0: just become a little bit too extreme, I think. Yeah, and but the funny
2: thing about the carnivore diet is that it's a it's a direct response to the rise of feminism. It's men's way of trying to feel more secure in their own masculinity.
1: Mm, that's really that's interesting. An, that's an
2: interesting <laughs> I've not really looked into that, but that's, meat is something that, 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 is, that is seen is as inherently point. very masculine. Mm. And throughout history represented something that is inherently part of masculinity. So there's some really interesting research, actually, about how men who are vegan almost f- uh, feel the need to compensate their masculinity in other ways, improve their masculinity in ways right. because they're not eating meat. You mean we- they can't go to a restaurant and ask for a steak anymore? Yeah. And because that is such a defining uh, cultural aspect of masculinity, this idea of you know oh, I'm meat, eating meat because I'm manning, I'm beefing up, you know, all these kind of language that we have around meat, And so there's this interesting compensation of masculinity in some way. how do they compensate? Through through either, like, for example, some of the, some, in research, what they show is that some people do this by going to the gym a lot and getting really bulky by basically saying, look how muscular I am. I don't need me to be muscular. Look at me, how amazing I am. Um, But also the other part of that is obviously we have now a rise of more inequality and a rise of feminism and more of a culture of actually recognising toxic masculinity. And that is seen to some people, to some men in particular, see that as a threat on their well-being and a threat on their identity. And it generally tends to be more the extreme right-wing aspect right. of things. So you think the, 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 the rise of the carnivore
1: is a response to all of this stuff
2: potentially? Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's, it's risen in conjunction with men's rights activists as well.
1: Um, Very interesting. How we accidentally go into politics. (laughs) Do you think there are any sort of universal um, rules which do apply to everyone, or do you think it is um, really individual in terms of nutrition and health?
2: I don't like using the word rule just because it implies that it's very absolute. I Mm. think there are some overarching guidelines which would apply to most if not all people okay. and should be a starting point where for people who are unsure about what to eat, for example. And I think the biggest of that is fibre is generally a pretty damn good thing. Mm. And the best way we can get enough fibre is by eating whole grains and fruits and vegetables and beans and pulses and beautiful things like that. And I think that's a really good starting point. If you are having a lot of those, then whatever else is in your diet is going to be beneficial in other ways and is probably not going to be as harmful for example if there is anything that could potentially be harmful in large quantities will be negated by the fact that you are eating lots of fruits and vegetables. So I mean for example we know that eating too much saturated fat is not a good thing. However, if you're eating lots of fiber, some of that some of that saturated fat is negated by the fiber. So you have a bit more leeway uh. if you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables. So I think that's a good starting point. And that generally. seems like that seems like sensible advice to me. And, yeah, it's very sensible. And just get all the nutrients that your body needs. And I don't really care how you do it. Get us take a supplement, get it from food. Whatever way works for someone, just get all the different nutrients that your body needs in order to function well.
0: What do you think about, what's your opinion about supplements?
2: I think in some circumstances they are really necessary. Yeah. For example... If you're vegan, I say take a B12 supplement. I honestly don't care how many fortified foods you're eating. It's usually not enough for most people generally because I think you have to consume around over a litre of almond milk a day to get enough B12 from it, from most brands, right. which is not the quantity that people are generally consuming almond milk in. I don't really see people chugging a whole litre so, very often. <laughs> yeah. So just take the supplement because then it's a guarantee that you're safe with that. Yeah. Also, vitamin D is recommended by Public Health England and the NHS for everyone in the UK. And so I would say similar latitudes and higher to have throughout the winter months, so from around October to March, April. Yeah, because most
0: are deficient in vitamin D.
2: Yeah, it's really easy to get deficient in vitamin D over winter as well because we cannot get enough from sunlight. Our bodies can't make enough from sunlight because Mm. the sun is too low in the sky. Food is a terrible source of vitamin D and is very, very unreliable. And so supplementing is the only real way. Also, if someone prefers not to eat fish for whatever reason, I think taking an omega-3 supplement is a really good idea as well, especially for young people whose brains are still growing because our brains are still developing so much up until the age of about 25. So I think at that point, taking an omega-3 supplement is a great idea. Then you also have considerations like anyone who's trying to become pregnant, I think should take a pre-pregnancy multivitamin to be on the safe side. But on the whole, if you are eating lots of different things and you're not missing out on anything, I would always rather you get your nutrients from food where possible. Yeah. But in the end, it's completely up to the individual and I'm not going to judge them either way.
0: Yeah. No, everybody's living very busy lives. Mm. It's one of the common... Common themes that we've been discussing: that um, cooking from scratch, sourcing your food, eating properly, and eating sufficiently is mm. something that is becoming a struggle for many, especially with the working hours and
1: yeah. the busyness
0: that people are are going through.
1: Yeah, and even if you are, you know, cooking from scratch and and trying your best, you can't necessarily squeeze in everything you need, can you? Yeah, I agree. Exactly. It's
2: something I actually talk about a lot with people in clinic, and I have a a small small list of meals that I know that I can make in 15 minutes or less. Mainly revolving around couscous, to be fair, because it's just 90 seconds and it's done. Yeah. Um, but also for people who have depression, for example, or people who yeah work long hours, or people who are just really unsure and don't know how to cook. Mm. Just starting with real, basic, simple things you can do in 15 minutes.
0: And have you got these recipes in your
2: books by any chance? Yes, there are definitely one or two recipes in there that yeah. I know can be made in a very, very short amount of time. There's one pasta recipe that's literally just cook some pasta, add some pesto, chop some tomatoes and smush in some mozzarella and you're good. Uh, Something like that, I think. Uh, Something along those lines. So, yeah, I I do think it's important for... I think it's great if recipe books have really simple things in them.
1: Yeah, definitely. Just it makes it
2: way more accessible, doesn't it? Yes. And I see I've seen a lot of wellness books that are they have very good intentions, but often have ingredients lists that are two miles long, which for some recipes, no problem. For every single one, bit of an issue. And also contain a lot of ingredients that your average person just cannot easily find. Yeah. And so from, from, for a Ford. Or afford, exactly. I think that's a really good point. And one thing I made sure was for my book that every single ingredient could be found either in any supermarket or really, there's only one ingredient that you can't get in most supermarkets and that's really cheap on Amazon. So what's that? Uh, black black lentils. Black lentils. For black doll. Oh, nice. Which is just, oh, nice. it's one of the most black beautiful doll. things.
0: Amazing.
1: Mm. I think any doll is good. Yes.
0: You're, you're, right. you're, you're a doll Love fan. Love lentils.
1: <laughs> They're great. I, I'm a big doll fan yeah. as well. Oh, It's just, it just makes me feel happy and warm and cosy inside. And it is. And also, it's just very cheap, very yummy, nutritious. All good. It's, a
0: good, yeah, it's a good all-around meal, and yeah. especially if you're a student as
2: well.
1: Oh, but tell us a little bit more about your books. Yes.
2: Oh, yes. Let's okay. talk about them. So book one, The Wellness Rebel, is where I smash through a couple of nutrition myths that have been very pervasive on social media. So each chapter is dedicated to a particular nutrition myth. For example, the idea that everyone should be avoiding gluten or that sugar is addictive and toxic or that we should all be eating raw foods all the time, which does not make biological sense. Some of them, fine. All of them, why? Cooking is one of the best things that's I ever agree. happened to the entirety of humanity. I agree. Why would you not cook things? Also, it's cold. Let's eat warm things because it's just... I'm not here to eat salads in winter. I'm too cold for that. Or smoothie bowls in winter. I yeah, oh, can't no. think of anything worse. I mean,
1: I'm, I personally, I've got to say, I don't mind cold food. Not necessarily raw food, but cold food is completely fine for me. What? <laughs> I'm like, really? No, no, I just don't like really like, hot food. Or <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but, so, but it can be you know, pre-cooked and then tepid. Yes, yeah. and actually
0: from a scientific point, uh, foods are better for you if they're cooked, aren't they? Depends on the food and, and depends, depends on, on the food. nutrient. Yeah, it's right. always
2: context dependent. Yes. So, for example, something like tomatoes, you get more vitamin C from the tomatoes if they're raw, but you get more lycopene, which is mm. a really amazing phytonutrient, if it's cooked. Yeah. So it really depends. And there are some foods like you know, potatoes, for example, or beans, where to eat them raw is actually potentially harmful. Yeah. Whereas eating them cooked means that you are breaking down some of the barriers that prevent your body from being able to absorb the nutrients effectively. And so they are much more bioavailable and much more accessible and much more delicious when they're cooked. So it really Depends on the nutrients. So that's the first book, mm. is where I talk about these various nutrition myths and try to give people the theory behind it in a way that's accessible, and then allow people to put it into practice through delicious food, which again is accessible.
1: And what was the, what was the response to the book? What was the what do people think about the debunking of the food myths?
2: I mean, the reaction to the book has been really positive. It's the reaction to on social media that tends to be more negative. Yeah. It's a really interesting divide. I think the people who buy my books are also the people who know that I'm going to say things that might challenge them and they're okay with that, um, which is wonderful. More people like that need to exist, not for me personally, but just for the world. So with social media, do you still
0: find that people are quite resistant and are negative on social media
2: to this day? Yes. With your deep, well, myth busting, I guess. It will just take one thing that people are very attached to to make them get very upset with me. So do you have to be really clear in how you say that? Oh, my gosh, yes. So, for example, uh, not too long ago, I did a post about uh, gluten myths, basically. And what I was so careful with my wording, I almost never put absolutes. I always tend to say things like, for some people, this can happen. For other people, this can be an effect. So, for example, I was saying that some people who think they are intolerant to gluten are For others, it is more how they're eating because Mm -hmm. when we eat things like spaghetti, we tend to eat it quickly, without chewing properly, and a lot of it. Those three things don't make for your very happy gut bacteria. You tend to get bloated. You tend to get gas. That's nothing to do with what you ate. It's how. So for some people, that is the case, and I see this a lot in clinic as well. For others, it's actually other ingredients that are related to, that are maybe found in products that are also gluten-containing. For others, it's simply psychosomatic, they, they are so convinced that they will get a negative reaction to gluten that they do. And this is something that is well documented in research as well. That, and actually, following on
1: from that, then, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, what role do you think that social media plays in your life now? I mean, it's clearly different from what it was previously, but probably mm. still quite important.
2: I, yeah, I still think it's quite important. Social media used to be the be all and end all of my career. It used to be where I made all of my income. It used to be where the, it was so important. It was I depend on it completely. I think I still depend on it a little bit because it's not easy to change that so quickly. And I get most of my clients in clinic through social media in some way. Right, Because it's important to have a presence anyway, whatever you're doing, yes. isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And uh, a lot of my speaking gigs, for example, come from the fact that people can see I, ha- I am eloquent on social mm-hmm. media yeah. and they see that I can speak about things well and therefore they are more likely to book me for speaking things, for example. However, I think I'm reaching a point, which is really interesting to me, I think I'm reaching a point where I no longer need social media in the same way that I used to and I don't need to have a lot of followers. For me to grow my following is actually not really important. It doesn't really matter in the same way that I think it used to for my career. I still want it to grow a little bit because more because I know that what I'm saying is useful and helpful to people or to many people, at least not everyone, maybe, but lots of people. And so I want to reach people in order to help them in some way, because I know there are a lot of people who either can't or are unable to, for some reason, able to come see me in clinic for proper one-to-one advice.
0: Where do you see the future of food and wellness? We've talked about where it has been, where you're now, how, what? What do you foresee in the future?
2: Um, (laughs) Big question. I see the future of wellness being quite divisive. Mm. I see the difference between those who are qualified and who are careful and ethical and those who are more interested in money and fear rather than actual health. I see that divide getting bigger rather than smaller because... Food mirrors politics in a lot of ways and I think there are so many areas of human life that are getting more divisive and social media enables that to an extent. And because so much of wellness and health and food is on social media and depends on social media, lots of young startups, for example, depend on social media. And I think because of that, food, will be, food and wellness will be a more divisive subject than ever before and eventually we'll get to the point where that will collapse which will be wonderful. And we'll get to a place where we all realise that actually we need to listen to each other. We need to have more, some more respect and compassion for each other. And I think eventually that divide will get to a point where it cannot go any further and it will collapse on in itself and people will start being nicer to each other. What is the best bit of advice that you've ever received? I think it was some, probably something along the lines of I'm a perfectionist and I, call my, I say I'm a recovering perfectionist because I think it's a lifelong endeavor and it's not a good thing to be a perfectionist, to be honest. And I think the best bit of advice I have ever been given in relation to that was replace perfect with good enough and good enough for today given the context of today. So it's not about doing my best, it's doing what I'm able to in the moment to with the abilities and the context that I have. That's and shifting that perfect to good enough has allowed me to actually relax a lot more into my work and be okay with when things aren't perfect, because Mm. often they're not. Because, of course, because what is perfect... It's mm, I know whatever's I know. Crea-
0: whatever's created here
2: <laughs> yeah in my head in, there is in, a, I, I could give you <laughs> a, give me a scenario and I could tell you what is perfect um, but I resist that extensively
1: yeah I think we all need to
2: do that
0: yeah definitely yeah. that's some really solid advice thank you so much for your time it's been Thanks. wonderful lots of food for thought lots of food a- yeah. for no, pun, pun intended, pun intended.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Pixie, for joining us today on What the Focaccia? And thank you all so much for listening. And please feel free to give us a
0: five-star rating and tell your friends all about it. Plus, you can follow us on our socials, which are
1: Bettina's Kitchen and Rebel Recipes. Thanks again to April and Colt for making this all possible. They're the organic home delivery grocer who deliver fresh and seasoned organic food straight to the door. And they've kindly offered our listeners a brilliant offer of £10 off your
0: first three shops over £30 when you enter the code PODCAST at the checkout. Check their website, ableandcoal.co.uk, for more details, where you'll also find
1: all the T's and C's.